The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. In just a moment, we're going to speak to the former business secretary and Liberal Democrat leader, Sir Vince Cable, on UK-China relations. Uh, But first, Lizzie, I am refreshed and renewed this Monday morning after escaping the world of politics very briefly to take a trip to Edinburgh over the weekend. Although I have to say, I did find myself uh, thinking a lot about the topics that we talk about in the show on the train journey north, particularly as we passed the Drax power station at one stage, (laughs) which is a topic that we have just discussed very recently on this programme. Um, but I did do my best to steer clear of the political shows at the Fringe. Oh, you didn't see Alex Salmond? No, I didn't, sadly. Um, I mean, look, it's the sort of thing that it was, first of all, very nice to be back. I used to go to the Edinburgh Fringe regularly and I haven't been in years. So it was very nice to be back and see uh, just, I, I mean, how, what a wonderful gathering of, of time and events uh, it is. Uh, I did, though, although steering clear of the politics, did I did go to a show about a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least we had a bit of that. Uh, the, the, and I highly recommend it's called Cathy and Stella Solve a Murder. And it's about a murder podcast, uh, which is essentially, and it's an absolute riot. Well, Lizzie, Lizzie's rolling her eyes at me. I think it's far too lowbrow culture for Lizzie. Speaking of crimes against <laughs> humanity, uh, you needn't have left London for that. Have you seen Matt Hancock lip syncing I'm Just Ken? No. Picture the scene. The ex-Tory health secretary turned kangaroo testicle consumer walking slowly down a beach towards the camera, wildly gesticulating as he sings the following. That is, has got to be enough. But if you haven't watched it, remember... You can never unwatch it. I mean, to be clear, it. that was Ryan Gosling singing. So it wasn't Matt Hancock we were we were hearing. But that's the clip from the Barbie movie, which um, Matt Hancock decided to uh, lip sync to. And as Lizzie said, if you see it once, you can't unsee it. So now, let us bring you a welcome antidote. We're going to talk about UK-China relations. An HSBC executive has called the UK government, quote, weak for allowing the US to strong arm it into cutting back business dealings with China. And to discuss, we're joined by one of the strongest proponents in UK politics for closer ties with China. It's Vince Cable, former Secretary of State for Business and Trade and former leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2017 to 2019. So Vince, really brilliant to have you on the Bloomberg UK Politics. Thank you. So, Sir Vince, your 2022 book, The Chinese Conundrum, sets out how complex it is making foreign policy on China. Is the UK blindly following the US when it comes to this? Uh, Well, I don't know about blindly, but it certainly is. I mean, there is a spectrum of reactions to China. You could say on one hand, 
naivety, very innocent, um, not realizing we're dealing with some very tough customers here. But on the other hand, you have extreme paranoia. And I think that paranoia is really now becoming the kind of dominant mood. And we're seeing kind of Chinaman under every bed and uh, things that, that are potentially useful to us are being excluded on the grounds that it may involve spying or something of this kind. I mean, China operate, offers, as it has for many years, a mixture of massive opportunities, but also considerable risks. And, you know, for business people, navigating between the two is tricky. Yeah, and I mean, the, the comments that we heard from this HSBC executive, he's their head of public affairs, Sherard Cowper-Coles. He told attendants at a closed-door event in London in June that the UK would often bow to the demands of Washington and shouldn't blindly follow the US, and accusing the British government of being weak for going along with the US position on China. Now, he said that these were personal comments. They don't reflect the views of HSBC or the China-British Business Council, which is also uh, associated with... Nonetheless, I mean, does he have a point in how the British government approaches that relationship with China? I think he does, yes. I mean, a very good example of it, and one I personally was involved in in government, is the issue of Huawei. Now, clearly, if you're involved with a Chinese telecommunication company, I mean, there are obviously risks of data leakage, and and they're a very sophisticated company, so you have to be careful. But when I was in government, the view of the official agencies was that these are risks that can be managed. Uh, That information was passed on subsequently to Theresa May, who reached a compromise uh, about how we dealt with Huawei in the emerging 5G system. But effectively, then the Americans said no, and we had to cave in, and, and Huawei are being actually ripped out of the telecoms network. And the practical consequence, which we saw the other day from a review of British infrastructure, is that Britain has now fallen to the back of the league table when it comes to telecommunications infrastructure and 5G. And all these you know, high-risk companies that the, company, the government wants to encourage are now being put at the back of the queue. So deferring excessively to uh, pressure from the United States is unhelpful to the UK and not in our interests. So what do you think is the biggest misconception when it comes to the British view of China? Well, I think it's right to have a a screening process when you have inward investment. I mean, not just for China, but, but particularly for China. I think it's perfectly reasonable that you try to make an objective assessment of risks to national security, if there is. And we have uh, high quality officials, the national security advisor to do assessments. But for the most part, uh, you know, Chinese investment trade with China is highly beneficial to the UK, whether it's in goods or services. Um, British companies investing in China, it's tricky. There are a lot of sensitivities, but uh, the AstraZeneca's and Jaguar Land Rose of this this world have found that it's highly profitable and those profits have helped to fuel investment in the UK. So I think for companies that are willing to be a bit thick-skinned and and deal with difficult sensitivities on both sides, um, they should persist with um, engagement with China. It's very much in our economic interest that we do so. Do the checks and balances that you describe that exist within government, are they sufficient and are they do they not need cooperation with the likes of the US to be able to be sufficiently informed and provide good advice to government and to businesses? Well, advice can come from different sources and of course we have to listen to what our American friends tell us. 
and there is a five eyes intelligence gathering system and that's very much in our interest and we've got to listen to that but there are other voices um countries in europe france germany have taken a somewhat different view of china they're converging but there are different views certainly more open to engagement and we've got to listen to them too even though we're no longer part of the european union and of course many of the countries of the global south um, have taken the view that it's very much in their interest to take advantage of chinese trade and technology where it's available I mean, it's one thing for companies to be thick-skinned, but should the government too be thick-skinned when it comes to human rights in China? Well, human rights is an issue in dealings with about 50 countries. I mean, we're at the moment cultivating India, and I'm all in favour of that. You know, India is a very important country. It's very important we deal with it. But if you're concerned about human rights, then we shouldn't be doing it. I mean, there are all kind of major problems. There are major problems, of course, in China. We know about it. The UN recent study on Xinjiang was was highly critical. But, you know, we've just got to take a view. I mean, we deal with countries like India, Saudi Arabia, China, Indonesia, all of which have got big human rights problems, or we don't. And if we don't, who do we deal with? Um, if we're just wanting to deal with countries that have the same standards as we do, you know, we should be in the European Union, but we've we've left it. So if we're going to trade with the world, if we're going to invest with the world, we have to deal with these big, complex, sometimes repressive regimes uh, and accept that, you know, human rights is, is a complexity that, 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 that makes the relationship difficult. But we can't walk away from them. Yeah, so we're being selective about, the UK is being selective about who it objects to, perhaps because of political concerns. I think in the case of China, the, 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 there are genuine human rights issues. Of course, we know that. The clampdown in Hong Kong, the, the issues which the UN identified in Xinjiang and others. Um, but of course, other countries have very serious human rights failings. It isn't irrelevant. Of course, it's relevant. We have our values, but we can't just walk away from the rest of the world because um, part of their country or part of their government has engaged in bad practice. Mm. I also wonder how concerned you are, Savince, about the repercussions of the stalling Chinese economic recovery, because there seems uh, within China to have been this drip feed of stimulus measures, but no bazooka. I wonder if you're worried about the ripple effects for the British economy. Um, well, there are indirect effects, yeah, and for sure there is a serious problem, and, and some economists have been pointing this out for four or five years, um, that, that, country, that China became over-dependent on large-scale investment, much of which wasn't well used. Uh, the property sector was massively overextended. Uh, local government finance is in a, in, in a mess. Uh, the economy is basically supported in terms of foreign exchange markets by severe capital controls. I mean, the, uh, you know, the Chinese has had a miracle of, of economic growth, but it's also got serious economic problems that we've now got to slow down. Um, I, I, I think that Chinese have enough policy instruments and enough intelligence in their uh, policymaking community and the central bank and, and the finance ministry to deal with these. But yeah, there is a slowdown. It will affect the rest of the world, both in a good way, because it will suppress commodity prices, but also in a bad way that it's it's inhibiting growth. We talk about the general election. I mean, you've had various by-elections recently and the Liberal Democrats doing quite well. The Tories have got challenges at different ends of the country from you and the Labour Party. 
So Vince, how should your party build on those gains at the general election? Well, I, th- I think there is a, a good practical recognition. I think Ed Davies is a very practical guy. He understands the importance of building up grassroots organisation and campaigning. Um, and as a result of the success in the by-election, and, I, and in a way more important, the successes in local government elections, um, the Liberal Democrats are now rebuilding the base that was very badly damaged uh, during and after the coalition. Um, and uh, I think the number of target seats is probably something of the order of 30 at the moment. And these are seats where the Liberal Democrats are the main challenger to the Conservatives. We're hardly anywhere we're challenging Labour except in Sheffield Hallam. So uh, you know, those are seats which, with a combination of good organisation and tactical voting, um, the Lib Dems will greatly increase their number of MPs at the next election and hopefully get past the Scottish Nationalists and getting back to the position of the third party in Parliament matters enormously in terms of publicity and being taken seriously. If there is a hung Parliament after the next election, would you be advising Ed Davey to enter a coalition? Uh, no, it's not my role to offer advice. I've, I've made it very clear I don't want to be a backseat driver. I think coalition is highly unlikely. It's, I mean, anything is possible. Nothing should be ruled out. Uh, but the experience of um, coalition which we had was very good, I think, for the national interest, but very bad for the party. A sort of an unbalanced relationship with a major party puts us at a considerable disadvantage, um, and we, we reap the whirlwind. So I don't think there will be any enthusiasm in the party for a coalition. That's not to say uh, that the party will not want to be cooperative and, and help in the national interest to provide stable government. And there, there are different ways you can do that. But I, I think coalition is one of the less likely options. Having uh, lots of experience in politics, to say the least, is this about the time horizon out from a general election that parties start talking about coalitions, thinking about coalitions? Well, I think internally they will be doing so. Um, as I say, um, it, it's it's an unlikely outcome. It, it, it's virtually impossible that the Lib Dems would work with the Conservatives in the coalition, and I think somewhat unlikely that we would do so with Labour. But but certainly the various permutations and combinations that arise in a hung Parliament is certainly very live as an issue. It's it, there will be a lot of number crunching and thinking going on within the parties and possibly an element of dialogue as to how you manage things. So before the 2010 election, we were having conservative uh, conversations with both Conservative and Labour people, and grown-up politics would suggest that we should be doing the same now. Sir Vince, another issue that we've been talking about a lot on our programme in recent weeks has been the controversy around the closure of Nigel Farage's account at Coots and the subsequent debate it, it launched around the issue of debanking. I was wondering, do you have a view on the issue and, and, and how important it is? Well, I supported him. I mean, I, you know, Nigel and I have very different views on politics, notably on Brexit and other things, but we have a civilised relationship we we debate uh, but on this issue is right that uh, it was fundamentally wrong to use political judgments to exclude somebody from a bank account as if you're in many spheres of life whether it's uh, business public public life you need a bank account you can't function without it 
uh, and for banks arbitrarily to abuse their powers um, using very subjective judgments is completely wrong. I mean, it's not just Nigel Farage. You know, sex workers, for example, have reported that they've been deprived of bank accounts because people have been passing moral judgments on their jobs, and that, that's equally wrong. So, yeah, he started what I think is a useful campaign, but let's not forget that there are much, much bigger issues affecting the banking system. The whole issue at the moment about how banks use their profit windfall from interest rates, how much of it's fed back to their depositors, how much is used to support borrowers in distress. I mean, these are the biggest issues around banking at the moment. Okay, Sir Vince Cable, thank you so much for joining us on the programme, former business secretary and leader of the Liberal Democrats. Now to the government's immigration plan. The UK will begin housing asylum seekers on a barge moored off the Dorset coast by the end of the week. This as the government is seeking to focus on the issue of immigration this week, linked to Rishi Sunak's pledge to stop people travelling in small boats to reach UK shores. Well, let's speak now to Mike Jones, Executive Director of Migration Watch, a group which advocates for lower immigration to the UK. Good to have you on the programme, Mike. I wonder, can any political party grip this issue? Well, yes, they can. Um... I mean, the, the BB Stockholm has, has been in operation since the 1970s. It's, uh, you know, provided accommodation to homeless people in, in Hamburg. It's provided accommodation to uh, asylum seekers in Rotterdam. And uh, it's housed construction workers off, off the coast of the Shetland Islands. So, uh, you know, there's no reason why the BB Stockholm cannot house uh, asylum seekers. And th- there's absolutely no reason why the UK government cannot find, you know, find these alternative means of, of accommodation. Um, you know, it, it, it's clearly a case of, of, of competence and, and will. Um, you know, political parties can deal with this, but they've made, you know, awful decisions in the past. And we are where we are. And, uh, you know, we have an asylum backlog close to 170,000. So resolving this now is going to be quite difficult. But uh, there are means of of achieving this, certainly. What is your assessment of the the Conservative Party and this government's, uh, I suppose, policies in this area the, the promise is to to stop the boats in in Rishi Sunak's words um are they going the right way to achieve their goals I mean there are two issues here you have to you know sort of disentangle there's the um illegal immigration problem and there's uh, you know sort of net migration the media don't tend to distinguish between these net migration is at a record level of you know 606,000 a year according to the ONS. And that's not a failure of government policy. That's a result of purposeful government policy. Uh, The the government has introduced, uh, you know, laws and regulations that actually allow this to to take place. In terms of illegal immigration, uh, the the government, you know, are are committed to stopping the boats, but uh, they've, they've been too slow to react. They didn't anticipate the resistance uh, to their policies by, you know, the the sort of activist lawyers, the NGOs, uh, the legal architecture that we have here. So, yeah, it's very much uh, a mixed bag. I I, I don't think the the government has got a grip on this. 
Uh, but certainly they, they have the tools in terms of primary and secondary legislation to uh, actually get a grip on this. I mean, the legal, illegal migration distinction is certainly one that we have made in our reporting here. But I wonder whether it's one that the public is making. Do you think that Rishi Sunak's managed to successfully communicate that in the minds of the British people? The the government want the public to focus purely on the uh, the illegal migration problem. I mean, this is going to sound quite controversial, but I, I think the BB Stockholm is a bit of a, dis- a distraction. It has, you know, 222 cabins. It can house about 500 people. But, I mean, last month we had, you know, more than 3,000 people arriving here over the English Channel. You, you'd need, you know, at least six or seven BB Stockholms to accommodate those people. Uh, you know, RAF Scampton, another alternative site for housing these people, has been delayed until October because they can't get people to survey the buildings and they can't provide proper connectivity between, you know, the the water, gas and electricity. Uh, you know, we they've housed people in, um, in another site, but, uh, you know, you, you've had people there who have come down with tuberculosis and, and scabies, and I, I think there's one case of scurvy. So it's a complete and utter mess. But but I I don't think the distinction is is made correctly in in the media. The vast majority of people who are coming into this country uh, are coming through legal routes, and the government has liberalised uh, the regulations that allow people to come to come in here. Whether it's you know salary requirements, uh, skills requirements. Uh, rules relating to dependence, uh, you know, not not just with workers, but with students. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that distinction could could be made better to the so, British public. So, so what you're advocating for is tighter controls on the, the legal routes to migration, even when there is a labour shortage in the UK, for example, and, and we know that there are shortages of, of workers, um, which will need to, and now and will need to in the future, because of the demographics in the UK, need to be filled by migrant workers? Well, we we advocate um, restrictions for both legal and illegal migrants, although, you know, both streams have to be treated differently. I mean, listen, the the concept of a shortage is, uh, it's economically not sound. Well, economic growth in the UK is in the doldrums. Well, listen here, Um, we could have a population of one billion, right? We could have one billion people in the UK. We'd still have labour shortages. Typically, markets respond to shortages by raising wages or providing uh, different skills uh, and training and upskilling and reskilling the labour market. That's how it works. If you import, say, 5,000 people to fill 5,000 shortages, you create another 5,000 shortages because immigrants aren't just uh, producers of goods and services, they're consumers of goods and services as well. They, they need housing and clothing and food and all the rest of it. And, you know, they, they create vac- vacancies um, by virtue of being here. You know, it, it's, it's an example of the lump of labour fallacy. So uh, I, I would very much question this, you know, shortages narrative. And yet paying higher wages in order to attract British workers to that those jobs is precisely part of the problem that 
the UK economy faces, we have an inflation problem, which is the Prime Minister's number one priority to fix. Well, the, the, the inflation problem is, is a result of, of quantitative easing. It, it's of printing money. Um, you know, the, that stems very much from monetary policy and an energy policy as well. Uh, that has very little to do with with immigration or um, allowing the market to to uh, you know pay domestic workers higher salaries or upskill uh, domestic workers. So, so, what are the changes then that you're advocating for in the legal migration system? Well, we think net migration should be below uh, one hundred thousand. Um, you know, we've launched a petition on this. So who should ha- so who should have the right to come and work in the UK then? How should they be selected? Well, very high, highly skilled workers, uh, people, limited numbers of of legal migrants with with high human capital. Um, you know, people with company specific experience. Uh, you know, people with skills that are difficult to recruit in the short term in in the domestic labour market. Uh, and, and yeah, th- these people will, will definitely contribute to productivity, but they're limited in number. But, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is uh, a system where every Tom, Dick and Harry can come into the country. I mean, that's not true. There are limits on how be- people can come into the country. You still have to apply to and be granted a visa if you're coming via one of the legal migration routes. And there are criteria applied by the government in that case. Well, no, the, the, the vast majority of, of people coming here on a work visa are actually in, in low and mid-skilled uh, occupations. And, you know, Migration Watch will we'll be producing a paper on this very soon. Um, so that's not true. I understand that you're saying that there, there may not be the criteria which you would wish to apply in this situation, but it's not to say that there are no criteria applied to people who are applying for visas in this country. They still go through a process and have to be approved uh, to come here. If, if we're looking towards a, a policy change that you're looking for, the government should be sticking to this less than 100,000 net migration, regardless of situations like Ukraine or Hong Kong, which are part of the reason which the net migration figure was so much higher in the last year? Yeah, I mean, certainly that that contributed to uh, the, the net migration statistics. I mean, listen, I, I think we should be generous when where we can. But, you know, you, you need to dot all your I's and, and cross all your T's. You, you need a, an immigration system that's strict but that allows uh, maximum flexibility to to highly skilled immigrants. Uh, so we're not putting pressure on the housing market, on public services, on wages. Uh, and and yeah, if we have that system in place, um, you know, ab- absolutely, I, I think we should be generous to to people who are fleeing persecution, for sure. Okay, well, thanks for bringing us your point of view. That's Mike Jones, Executive Director of Migration Watch, which advocates for lower immigration to the UK. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Christopher Pitt and Jack Ryan and our audio engineer was Barufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.